Bakın tamam değil. My mama uses power. Thank you for listening. Bye. Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high-rise or low-rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. Hello, welcome back to this week's episode of Mom Jeans. We are in the Mythbuster series. So today we're going to be giving some love to an often exiled food group, and that is sugar. Sugar. (laughs) Poor sugar. It is just like cursed at, drooled over, bemoaned, craved. It just, it never gets the neutral love that it so deserves. Oh, and the reason why is exactly the myth we're busting today, which is eating sugar is unhealthy for you. So we are taking you to history class to learn about the origins of sugar. And then we are interviewing the super fun co-host of the Let Us Eat Cake podcast, Hannah and Allie. This myth comes up from the earliest of ages. We are going to take you way, way back, y'all. <laughs> way, way back. People are concerned about sugars in formulas that will impact teeth. They are concerned about the sugars in juice boxes around at the lunch table. Parents feel uncomfortable when they watch their kid, quote unquote, go crazy, aka enjoy cupcakes at a birthday party. We hear this so much today, which is, I just can't keep that sweet treat in my house because I won't be able to stop. Or I can't give my child dessert until they eat their vegetables. There are also varying types of sugar, some which are celebrated for their fakeness, I mean chemical properties, while others are demonized for holding hands with Red 40 in the Kool-Aid. So where does this myth originate and why, oh why, poor sugar, are you the enemy? Which we know you're not, we love you. Ugh. The history of sugar is so long, so we won't bore you with all the details, but you can go check out the show notes if you are feeling curious, and we will link this super fun timeline for you. The parts we will focus on in this episode is how the messaging about sugar and the purposes of sugar have changed throughout history. So, ready for history class? Yes. Sugar was discovered 8,000 years ago in New Guinea when people used to chew on the roots. 2,000 years later, it made its way to India, where the first sugar mill is recorded. Then sugar begins to migrate its way into cultural recipes for thousands of years until it reaches the Mediterranean. And in 600 AD, at a teaching hospital in Iran, doctors are recorded writing about a potent Indian medicine. 
Sugar. Ooh. It's a medicine used by physicians. Wow, how times have changed. <laughs> Around that time, Egyptians became the masters of sugar production, and it began to get traction as a delicacy for the wealthy. Oh yeah. boy, once the privilege gets involved, I feel like this is where history always takes a turn, inserting huge, huge eye roll. I know. Enter the Crusades, and sugar gets introduced to Europe. Fast forward to 1400s and we begin to see larger scale productions of sugar in the Canary Islands and Brazil due to the high demands for medicinal purposes. Check out this text from 1515. As a powder, it is good for the eyes. As a smoke, it is good for the common cold. As flour sprinkled on wounds, it heals them. Sugar water alone also with cinnamon, pomegranate, and quince juice, is good for a cough and a fever. I feel like we've come a far way at, in, in medicine, you know? I might try that next time I get sick. <laughs> but hey, over the next few hundred years, sugar becomes more and more in demand for its taste. So now we're going from medicinal purposes to pleasure in the sugar era, especially in America, to sweeten drinks, and the slave trade begins to meet this demand. Told you this would go sideways, right? Ugh. So this continues for a few hundred years, and eventually by the early 1900s, sugar is now processed in larger-scale factories by some of the companies you recognize today. Sugar is minding its own growing little business until 1942, when the American Medical Association's Council on Food and Nutrition suggests that it, quote unquote, would be in the interest of the public health for all practical means to be taken to limit consumption of sugar in any form in which it fails to be combined with significant proportions of other foods of high nutritive quality. Did, did you like my official voice there? <laughs> it makes me want to punch you in the face, but I won't. That's the point. <laughs> Oh, so this was then followed up in the 60s, which is when a lot of us now are starting to be alive or hear our parents be witness to some of the messages with links to sugar and diabetes and the exploration of artificial sweeteners came into the picture, toting health benefits that were better than sugar, only to later be linked to cancer. And just like that, after literally 10,000 years of sugar being something that had medicinal purposes and sweetens the taste of food, in only the past 80 years, it has become one of the most feared foods. I know that we are all evolving as species, so modern research is extremely helpful. However, the fact that this has changed so rapidly, such a fat phobic lens, makes me stop and point that out. Once again, diet culture took something normal and beautiful and demonized it. F you diet culture. Well, this launches us into our next point that we will only discuss briefly because it's a big topic. A big sugar myth is that sugar is addictive. Given the fact that people have eaten, traded, and used sugar for medicinal purposes for literally thousands of years without needing rehab, makes me point out that sugar addiction myth is much more about the psychology and the impact of the demonization of sugar than it is about its chemical properties. Now, sugar admittedly is used more for our tastes than for our biological needs, but that is exactly why healthism loves to glob onto it. Because healthism is an obsession with good and bad nutrition and scoffs at pleasurable eating, it becomes an off-limits, quote-unquote, unneeded food, and its bad reputation is spread. 
I think that what we often see is that this label of sugar is bad, this misperception of sugar's role in our foods and our guilt when eating sugar impacts our unconditional permission to eat it, which is one of the principles of intuitive eating. So if a food is off limits, our brains react with feeling deprived and will increase brain signals to crave the food as part of its survival mechanisms. This is a brain reaction to a trigger of deprivation, not a brain chemical dependency. But Tina, can you share your RD thoughts on this? I have lots, but yes. I'm going to bring it back to the sugar addiction because Rachel and I always add in disclaimers. So here's a disclaimer. (laughs) Rachel and I do not believe that sugar is addictive. However, we understand that many individuals may feel that they are addicted to it. And I want to reframe here. That's it. You may be addicted, quote unquote, to the behavior of feeling out of control, binge eating or overeating on sugar or feeling unsafe if if it's in the house. It isn't the food that is causing the addiction or unsafe behavior. It is your mind. Science, psychology, and lived experience tells us that if we feel deprived of something, anything, whatever that may be, we are going to want to have it even more. My belief is, is that food is one part of our health, our lives, emotional, physical well-being. If we are living a life of constant deprivation or obsession around one food item, then what kind of quality of life is that? And I want to play a little game here. We're going to play Would You Rather. Ready? Yes. Would you rather have a great relationship with food that permits having a cookie, dessert, or item with sugar in it as you please, while also understanding the importance of balance, or would you rather deprive yourself of this food item, create the deprivation cycle that caused you to have to restrict this food or else you'll binge for the next 40 years, and... Pass on this disordered thought process to your children. Pick me. Pick me. I want the first one. (laughs) Yes. I feel like this is an obvious choice to me, but not my choice to make for y'all. That was a way more fun game than the would you rather my five-year-old plays. He's always like, would you rather get eaten by a shark and die or get eaten by a T-Rex and die? And I'm like, um. Oh, let's talk about this. (laughs) Can we therapize you for a second? Anyways. Oh, all right. Should we bust this myth even more? We today are hearing from the fun and wise registered dietitians over at the Let Us Eat Cake podcast today. They are Hannah Robinson and Allie Eberhardt. They are registered dietitians working in the Provincial Adult Tertiary Specialized Eating Disorders Program in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Allie holds a Bachelor of Science in Food, Nutrition, Health with honors from the University of British Columbia. In addition to her work as the residential treatment program dietitian, she also has a private practice with a focus on eating disorders and disordered eating. Hannah earned a Bachelor of Science in Food, Nutrition, and Health with honors at the University of British Columbia and works in inpatient eating disorder care. In addition to her clinical role, she holds an appointment with the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at the University of British Columbia as a clinical instructor. Together, in 2019, they launched the Let Us Eat Cake podcast, which is dedicated to ditching diet culture, addressing weight stigma, and busting nutrition myths that commonly arise in the media. They both practice the non-diet approach and are strong believers in the health at every size philosophy. All right, let's get to it. All 
All right, welcome to this week's episode. We have the lovely dietitians from the Let Us Eat Cake podcast to help us bust a myth about sugar. Is sugar unhealthy for you? Should we watch our sugar intake? We need some information here. So thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. You are so welcome. It is our very favorite myth to bust. So (laughs) we're pumped about it. And you know what? I'm like kind of bummed that we didn't plan for this and eat cake while we're on this. Yeah. uh, The it. (laughs) Darn it. I'll eat cake after. How about that? We'll have a snack of cake. Love it. Let's all do it together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to jump in and ask y'all to tell us who you are and why you are passionate about busting this myth. Well, uh, yeah, so my name's Allie Eberhard, and uh, my co-host is Hannah Robinson, and like you mentioned, we are the co-hosts of the Let Us Eat Cake podcast. We are both registered dietitians, and we work in the field of eating disorders in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, We work for the Provincial Eating Disorders Program, and so we work very closely with people who are healing their relationship with food and breaking free from diet culture. And I think one of the things we observe so often, especially, I mean, we're recording this in January, I'm not sure when this comes out, but you know, especially this time of year, there's so many rules and rigidities about food and a lot of fear-mongering around food. And sugar, for whatever reason, seems to be the nutrient that people love to attack first. Um, and so it's also one that's really fun to use the science to, to dispel. So I think that's why we love it so much. <laughs> yeah, you definitely can't live without sugar. And I think just the misinformation about it, we hear so many people talking about cutting it out and it's like, okay, then how is your brain working? And so we love just kind of reshaping people's understanding about nutrition so that they don't have to live these lives of restriction that ultimately life without carbohydrates and sugar I know personally does not make me a very nice person so um, definitely not yeah I always like I think poor sugar right like I know (laughs) it just gets such a bad rap rap. and it's sweet (laughs) and it's so sweet (laughs) You know, we should just like, I'm picturing sugar right now as its little molecule running around, happy, you know, like, let's just be nice to sugar. One of my favorite experiments with sugar with clients, and I love that y'all are dietitians. We're outnumbering Rachel right now. I'm so sorry, (laughs) Rachel, but um, is to do like pictures of molecules, right? Like, tell me which sugar is fruit. Tell me which sugar is this donut and cake and a banana or whatever. And clients are like, what the hell is wrong with you? Right. I'm like, ha ha, you can't tell. I love Neither it. Neither can your body. Right. I love that. Exactly. It's like newsflash, neither can your body. And our body is incredibly skilled at knowing what to do with nutrition. So the idea that we need to be this like person that, you know, sifts through the different sources of sugar when our body's been doing that for hundreds and hundreds of years is It's just, again, a product of diet culture. So I'm also, I'm from, where I'm from in Canada is like the bread basket of Canada. And so we are like the main producers of wheat and bread. And so like, along with sugar, I like also have a real soft spot for like just bread and carbohydrates in general, because it's like the food of my people. So (laughs) I feel like a lot sugar is like running in a field being bullied, but bread is like holding hands with sugar and running away too. So... 
So you did an amazing episode all about sugar on your podcast, and we'll link that in our show notes. But for our listeners, could you touch a little bit on the science of the types of sugar and how our bodies process the sugar? Because we're science nerds too, and we love that piece. So education is key for acceptance. So if you could help out our listeners, that'd be fantabulous. Yeah, you bet. So I think when people hear about, there's a few key words that we really need to define in order to understand sugar. The kind of umbrella term is carbohydrates. And so when people hear about carbohydrates or carbs, they often hear about simple carbs or they hear about complex carbs. And really what the difference is there is just how many of those molecules are attached to each other and how. So when Tina was talking about drawing all these little molecules, that's essentially what it is, right? They all break down into this one small molecule called glucose. Um, and it can, we can link them to other molecules to create different ones. Many people have heard of lactose. Lactose is two of these smaller molecules linked together. Whereas something like starch in the bread basket where Allie's from, <laughs> that's going to be a lot of those smaller molecules all linked together. And because there's so many, it makes sense that we would call them complex. Whereas one that's just on its own is quite simple. So that's the scientific molecular difference between the two. I mean, I think we'll probably get into this in this episode. There's been a lot of meaning and morality attached to both of those as well. Whereas simple carbs have been villainized as these types of carbohydrates that are like sugar or candy or juice, where these are the types of carbohydrates that your body digests really quickly. And so they're bad for you. Whereas something that's complex, maybe like a whole grain, grain bread or quinoa um, is a better carbohydrate that you would want to eat because it's the good, quote unquote, good carb. Our society literally is like simple carbohydrates are going to murder you <laughs> and complex carbohydrates are your best friend, right? They're just lathering your body in lotion and sitting in a spa. Like that's how they're making it seem where like, whoa, slow down, Nellie. It's, it's okay. No carbs are going to murder you. That's well, and down. our body, like we, people have this idea that like our body is so simple and just can't poor body can't quite figure it out. We better figure it out for our body. So, you know, that there's this idea, there's like the sorting system in our body that like our body's like, oops, this glucose molecule came from chocolate, better add it to the fat collecting section. And oops, this glucose came from an apple. So this one is going to be used for muscle tissue or for like immunity. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> Glucose is glucose is glucose, you know? And so our body is very skilled. It is very capable of deciding where and how to utilize these nutrients. Certainly in periods of famine from this nutrient, like if we are not getting enough glucose, our body does have to do things that are adaptive for survival. And that's what makes our body so incredible is that it knows how to survive despite some of our best intentions of starvation or of restriction of these nutrients. But you know, at the end of the day, our body doesn't sort what we've eaten based on the source. The good news is we get to eat a variety of sources and those taste good to us and they have different flavor profiles and they feel refreshing on a hot day versus soothing on a, on a cold day or, you know, using food in different ways. But 
the nutrient itself, once it's broken down, glucose at its simple form, isn't used differently depending if it came from something complex or simple. I'm just sitting here looking in Allie's office and she has a brand new calendar for the new year <laughs> up and it's Harry Potter. And we both love using Harry Potter analogies <laughs> in, in our practice. And we always talk about like our body is in a sorting hat. So when we're describing all of these foods coming in, all these wizards coming into Hogwarts for the first time, they aren't getting sorted like Allie was describing. And so kind of using that analogy to help our clients understand, like at the end of the day, your brain needs glucose and it's gonna take it from wherever it can get it from. Exactly. So you're saying all glucose is created equally. Oh. It's the morality we put on it. Definitely. It so and it's a learned response, right? Like this isn't something that we are innately born with. We absorb it from the world around us, whether that's simple messaging from peers, simple messaging from family of origin, from the media, from what we're, obs what we're observing all around us. And it's not because of malintent. Like it's not like malicious four-year-olds are telling each other that they should eat an apple versus a juice box. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, like the messaging is reinforced in so many places, we begin to just accept it to be true, that this must be a fact without actually testing the evidence because it's coming from so many different places. Right. I always come back to this fact of like, during pregnancy, I grew a boy in my body <laughs> And I grew a penis. Mm -hmm. I grew a penis in my body, okay? <laughs> and I don't know how I did that, okay? I, I wasn't inside a computer system, like, attach ball sack to <laughs> penis, right? Like, sorry, y'all. It just happened. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Yeah. I love an episode where we can say ball sack. <laughs> But my whole point is that for some reason, people, you know, really trust that. Like, okay, I, I trust that my body can design this penis, yet I don't trust that my body can take in these specific nutrients and do what they will, right? And so I love these really solid reframes, these analogies, because I think it does help people really be able to like map out their own thoughts, right? Because society tells us, no, sugar is going to murder you. It's going to make you so unhealthy. And so you have to try everything in your power to avoid it. And I love the analogy of like these two little four-year-olds screaming at each other, like, don't eat the juice, right? <laughs> but like, really? No, they're not doing that. It's messaging from wherever. So going down that thought train, how do you see this messaging being harmful? How do you see this myth being really harmful to people? Well, I think what the messaging tells us is, is it wants to simplify it, right? The messaging loves really black and white rules, really binary rules, because they're really easy to follow. And that creates a lot of safety and a lot of control for people who might feel like they don't trust their bodies or they don't trust themselves with food. So saying something like sugar is bad leads us to a place of restriction and elimination. Because quite frankly, restriction and elimination is a lot easier than living in the gray right? It's a lot easier than being like, I eat these foods sometimes, other foods other times, I have variety, I don't rely on the same thing every day. And so the harm that it causes is fear about food, it causes 
restriction of certain foods. It's certainly in the bigger picture, if we take a step back and we look at someone who might have said, okay, I can't eat any processed foods or I can't eat any foods with sugar, how's that person gonna socialize? How, if, if for whatever reason, we can one day go over to a friend's house and eat <laughs> dinner there again, which I'm very looking forward to, what happens if they make something with sugar? Does that exempt you from those kind of occasions or those types of celebration? And so we need to not only acknowledge the physical restriction that this is going to have on someone and the food groups we're taking out entirely, but also the mental and emotional restriction that's going to have too. The anxiety that that creates, like if you get invited to someone's house to eat, but you can't eat a long list of things. The anxiety you have when going grocery shopping, the anxiety you have when preparing a meal. Um, not to mention like carbohydrates play a very important role in the release of serotonin. Serotonin makes you feel really good. <laughs> if you're eliminating this molecule and this nutrient, you're going to feel like crap. And so in a bigger picture, at the end of the day, there's many reasons why you won't feel very good, but it's going to be very multifactorial. And we can totally appreciate why people want to find those rules because we live in an incredibly fat phobic society and we live in a world where people are stigmatized based on the body they live in. And so if it's as simple as cut out sugar and you can avoid living in that body that you see stigmatized or you see, you know, being treated unfairly, like, of course, like, especially like in the realm of this podcast, you know, of course, parents are going to want to help support their kids to avoid suffering. Like no parent is saying like sugar is great for kids and fun for them to enjoy in different ways um, and no harm at all, but we're going to limit it. Like the reason that they feel that they need to is because they think they're really helping their kids. And we can appreciate that. Like I have so much empathy for how complicated and confusing it is. Hannah and I don't have children and we get confused sometimes by the messaging. It's it's pervasive, right? And so we can absolutely understand the why people are looking for those rules to create safety for themselves and their families and their loved ones. We can understand like where the messaging is coming from and it's powerful and it's it's heavy hitting. And at the end of the day, like it doesn't actually serve us to have these limitations. In fact, what it sets up is guilt and shame and you know, feeling like you need to compensate and worries about what you've mistakes you've made and really inval invalidates the, the ability of us to, to trust our bodies. Okay, I'm so glad you went there with the parents piece, because as as I'm sitting here thinking about this being a myth that we need to bust, right? I think a big myth out there in the messaging and for parents is, but aren't there certain sugars that I should watch like the high fructose corn syrups or the sucroses or all the OS's that are like more quote unquote bad and what about the juice boxes and what about the red 40 like I think so many parents are like what what myths are bustable what myths feel like they're you know things I need to be conscious of for health reasons so I love that you're going there and I'm wondering if you guys can unpack a little bit like maybe some of the origins of how some of these messages about certain sugars were built or even just how parents can try to challenge this in their own homes yeah I think it's complicated right like I think that again like I never want to tell a parent or someone who's caring for you know someone who in their someone that's in their care that they're making choices nutritionally for that these are simple decisions and you know our patients in the eating disorder program will often roll their eyes at us when we're like 
a grain is a grain is a grain. Like all grains fit, like everything fits, 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 fits. It's all the same. Of course we recognize it doesn't, right? Like there are foods that we're going to eat that are going to not only give us that good source of glucose, but they also might bring along with them some of the vitamins that we don't get from other places or bring along some extra fiber that helps our bowel work really well. And like, we can recognize that there's all sorts of different sources of food. I think even apart from breaking down, like what is the limitations around corn syrup or what are the limitations around like different types of sugars? It again goes to this place of like making choices based in, on exclusion instead of kind of like living in a space of trying to include all foods so that there's nothing that has this power. Like I think of some foods that are on this pedestal and even like I can think of experiences growing up with foods that we weren't, we didn't have in the home. And so when I saw them outside of the home, the way they made me feel, they were exciting, they were thrilling. They were like, what is this? You know, we, we have lots of times in our lives where, you know, when something takes on a power of its own, even just human psychology makes us more intrigued by it. And so does that mean that we need to like, provide like a, a bar of alcohol for kids? No, of course not. I recognize that there's like important factors in like trying to help support our kids to make decisions that, you know, are going to be supportive for their bodies. But I think as soon as we start focusing on the things that we can't have, they, it, it gives an allure and a power to those types of foods. So like, yeah, is there food coloring in certain foods? Sure. But if we start creating a fear around that, you know, like, are we going to then create a power in a food that is just a nutrient? It's just one food that's available in the thousands of things that are available to us. And so I think that's kind of like the level one that I always focus on instead of like, us trying to figure out like which ones really you should exclude. Like what can we actually look at like including um, without that kind of like fear-based messaging? And the other thing I always talk about as well with like you were bringing up high, high fructose corn syrup and all these different types of foods and these foods that might've been villainized for being more processed. And, and the idea isn't that we're, we're saying this is, the most nutrient dense food you should have and you should have it with reckless abandon. The idea in the same way that we wouldn't say, have a Twinkie every day, all day for the rest of your life. We also wouldn't say go and eat broccoli every meal, every day for the rest of your life. And we need to be consistent with the messaging, right? Because it's not that we think that this is a, these are foods that, you should have all the time. They're just not foods that we need to say you can't have them or you need to have them in moderation because we're not saying that about the broccoli. And by doing that, we're saying broccoli is okay and it's safe. We just don't have it all the time, but a Twinkie is unsafe and that's why we have it sometimes. So it's not that these specific foods are really harmful. It's that we become, they become really harmful because of the beliefs that we attach to them. So when we are able to have all foods without morality and without fear, we can have them in balanced um, and balanced and frequent enough variety that they don't have any meaningful impact on our body. It's about the patterns, not about the specific foods. I work so often with clients where they'll be like, <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to give, these are parents working, you know, on challenging their own beliefs to not project them onto their kids. Like, okay, so I'm going to permit all food, right? And if I'm putting food on my kid's plate, I'm giving them the what, they're going to determine the if and how much. But 
if I give them a cookie with a meal and they want four cookies, you're telling me I'm supposed to give them four cookies. Well, what if they literally eat cookies now for the rest of their life, right? And I'm like, okay, I hope, I hope they do eat cookies for the rest of their life. And if we're looking at these specific situations, right? Like one moment where they ate a Twinkie, one moment where they ate five cookies at dinner, or one moment where you feel like they overate a food that you hold distorted beliefs around, then you're not looking at the big picture, right? And we're not designing kids to be balanced and intuitive eaters at one meal. We're hoping that they're going to be balanced and intuitive eaters throughout their whole life. And that who cares if they ate five cookies at one dinner, right? It's teaching them that cookies are on the same platform as everything else, right? And so what we're giving these parents are a solid relationship with food movement, their body, right? Not, oh, you can be this healthy eater because you never eat X, Y, and Z. Right. And what's the fear, right? Like, what if they do eat only cookies for the meal? I think we need to ask ourselves, what is the fear and what is the outcome we're most scared of? That my kid's gonna, you know, I think, I think in essence, we can recognize like, so I'm Italian, I'm from Ohio, we make cookie tables and send out cookies for holidays. Like you're never going to be, have access to cookies again. (laughs) So like we literally got 5,000 cookies, which is fine. And one of the cookies we got was a Buckeye. And so for those Ohio listeners, woo woo Buckeyes. Okay. So my, I give, gave my kid a Buckeye, which basically it's, it's peanut butter with powdered sugar I'm not going to give out the recipe, but <laughs> dipped in chocolate. Okay. I won't give out the gorge. Heaven. So I give my two-year-old a Buckeye, right? And then everyone around the table is like, we're well, not going to give him another one. Cause then he goes more Buckeye. Yummy. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I'm going to give him another Buckeye. And so I give him another Buckeye. <laughs> and what do you think he wants to do after that? Of course he wants another Buckeye. Everybody never wants a Buckeye. Everyone and they taste amazing. So he goes more, and you can see everyone just looking at me for direction. And I'm like, of course, buddy, here you go. And then, so the worst case scenario is that now my two year old is literally hopped up <laughs> on Buckeyes and is running around the house, takes his clothes off, naked, possibly peeing in a corner. I don't know, but he's just crazy because he has a lot of immediate energy. And guess what? The next time he had Buckeyes, he literally was like had one Buckeye and then didn't even finish it, threw it at me and went and played with this truck. And everyone was just like, this does work. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's my life experience. I think it's awesome. And I think the thing that also we need to like emphasize in that situation is that your um, energetic response wasn't different in either of those. Cause I think what can sometimes happen is we're like, yeah, see, we're letting them eat all this food. But then when he chose to only have half of it, then we celebrate it. And we're like, see, uh, yeah. look at my son. He learned intuitive eating so quickly, but they interpret that, right? Like it's more like, it's, it's like the experience. I mean, as an aunt to a million nieces and nephews, I know this experience of like some of the, fa- my friends and family who, jump the second their child falls right and then there's some who are just like they're fine you're good you're okay bud just get up you're all right you know and our our emotional response is something that's so interpreted and so i think in the same vein like 
not just in the allowing the food freedom, but also not celebrating when they respond to a very natural, you know, experience of just like feeling satiated, right? Because if, if we then respond, then child starts to be like, oh, when I don't finish my, you know, entire plate or my entire dessert or whatever, that's the good response. That's morality. And then that in fact, isn't listening to our bodies. And, you know, like my ex-boyfriend, this is something I always remember. His parents always told him like, you do not need to finish your plate. You can always leave something. And he always leaves something or left something. <laughs> We're not together anymore, but you know, <laughs> he left a lot he of things. Left me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> he always leaves. No, it's just what else yeah. do you want to say about him? Yeah, <laughs> he, uh, he always, you know, would even if he went up for seconds or thirds, there would always be a small bite left on the plate, and it is ingrained like that is a learned behavior wow. because of celebration. And it's not demonizing anyone, but it's more just like I think we also our reaction, our response, our internalized beliefs that's the piece that we want to check, not the like. If we don't have every food available, I mean, certainly that's a privilege to have all foods available. I, I recognize that, but you know, it's more about like, how do we react? Like, are we proud when our child chooses veggies over the piece of pizza at a birthday party? Because it's not just about like saying we allow food, but it's like just noticing our own reaction to, to how our kids respond to sugar. I keep thinking about body trust. And again, you guys are dietitians, so tell me if I'm off here, but this concept of we, don't trust our body's signals enough. So our body will communicate when it needs the glucose and our body will communicate when it needs the fiber and when it needs the protein and our job is to listen to it. So if we can go back to this concept of sugar is healthy because if our body is communicating to us that it needs some sugar, it needs some glucose or fructose or lactose or whatever, we need to honor it. It's trying to communicate what the factory needs in order to run and be energy efficient, correct? So part of this is this body trust piece that it really goes back to. If we can trust our body signals, then it allows us to have the all foods fit mentality. Completely. And and the trust piece also carries to that there are no mistakes to be made. So we don't need to be absolutely certain that what our body is asking for in this moment is 33 grams of carbohydrate and 20, like we do not need to know that. As it turns out, even if I feel a hunger cue and I make a choice, that's what I believe I want, or even what I just think tastes good or what I desire, like there's not a mistake and there's no consequences. So our body's not going to be like, ah, if only she had included vitamin C, this would be appropriate. But since she did not, like this is going to be stored as fat, the ultimate consequence. Like, no, that's not how our body works. So we can trust our body is giving us signals, but we do not need to be hypervigilant to ensure that these are the absolute correct decisions. When it comes to our body, because glucose at the end of the day comes from so many different sources, we can choose things with freedom and know that like our body knows what to do with it. We do not need to be like absolutely certain. Cause I think that's what the piece about like, I'll trust my body as long as there's absolutely no consequence and no outcome that I don't desire. And that's when, again, it's like a, it's like a backwards way of trusting. It's like trusting with strict ultimatums. Right. So this kind of flows us into, you know, having these conversations with kids, right? How can parents like they're doing the work for themselves. Okay, great. But like if kids are actually asking about it, right. Cause they're going to get this messaging in school from peers, watching TV, whatever it may be, how can parents have a kid-friendly conversation if their child brings it up? 
like Ali was saying, we can definitely have these conversations. We can definitely um, talk about how all foods fit and how we don't need to say no to some foods and yes to others and foods aren't good and bad and use that type of languaging. But ultimately it comes down to modeling, right? Because what we, what we say and what we do, if those are disjointed, we don't actually believe it, right? And children and people who are observing us want to know that we believe the things that we say. And, and so unless we're walking that walk too, and we're eating these foods and like we were talking about not having a strong reaction when there's three Buckeyes and not having a strong reaction when there's half a Buckeye, um, that's what's gonna help children around us believe that it is actually okay to eat all these foods and it is actually okay to, to have a variety and choose at, choose to trust our bodies in, in those moments and have the foods that we like the taste of as well. I mean, as a parent, I can say that I just had this conversation recently with my kids because they um, are with a babysitter one day a week when I work and they came, I came home and they said, mom, you got to talk to this babysitter because she keeps telling us we can't have that snack after school because it's got sugar in it and it's not healthy. Like you need to talk to the babysitter because you told us you told us all foods fit and sugar is not bad. So like, mom, go talk to the babysitter. But it, I thought it was great that my kids were able to be like, wait a second, mom, yeah. this doesn't go with what you've taught us. And the conversations we've had at home are just so complex, I can't even go into them. But there's just little nuanced ways when there is a commercial, when there is a TV show, when there is a snack choice. And sometimes I will say no to a certain snack because I know that I sure. need to, them to sit down and get their homework done. And if I give them three Buckeyes or something like that, that's just not going to happen. So there's certain times and places and so that is part of the conversation around our home and I often use Tina's favorite analogy of the log and the stick and how our bodies are a furnace and you know I'll say hey right now we can throw in a stick or right now we're going to throw in a log and you know so the the sugar can be a stick if we want to go there or something like that. But right now you're going to need a log or there's different conversations to have that are age appropriate. But I, I think that having that safe space to go, hey, we're all kind of trying to figure this out and I'm doing my work and I'm doing work on my anxiety when I watch my kids eat the sugar and I'm really trying to help them understand that health is such a bigger picture than what is in the granola bar. And I think you're doing the right thing, Rachel, where you're providing the what, right? The kid is not able to really decide like, oh, I need to sit down and concentrate. Why wouldn't I eat for a snack, right? Like, right. They don't have long-term logical no. thinking. And this is where, again, the division of responsibilities and us as parents need to decide the what, the where, the when, so that the kid can then have the autonomy over their body and the body respect and, to, and determine the if and how much. The other thing I think in a simple reframe, I work with a lot of clients and saying like, my kid came home with this assignment I, and I am appalled. They're asking to like categorize food or it's teaching about sugar or whatever crap they're being educationally fed about food, you know, and, and my simple reframe is that in our house, this is what we believe. So I understand that school is teaching you this, but that's their belief. But in our house, we believe X, Y, and Z. And that's why some of this messaging, you're going to hear different from your friends, from your teachers, what you see on TV. But we're going to keep having this open conversation because our home is a safe home around this, right? 
So, cause kids are going to bring up like, well, Joey at school said, this is what his mom said. Right. And it's like, okay, well, Joey's mom believes something different than us. Right. And that's okay. But it's not what we. All right. Well, this was so helpful. So thank you for all of your science knowledge and for helping us discuss body trust too. Cause that's a huge element with this myth. So could you please tell our listeners where they can find you if they want to hear more? There are tons of ways to get in touch. (laughs) Um, So you can find us, our podcast is available on all uh, major podcast platforms and you can find us at Let Us Eat Cake. You can also find us on Instagram, we're Eat Cake Pod. Uh, We give all of our updates about our podcast there. What we also have on Instagram is a daily virtual snack support. So every day at 3 p.m. PST, Allie and I hop on the air and we eat a snack and we tell jokes and we just have a fun, supportive, distracting kind of 15, 20 minutes where we kind of connect with our community, check in, see how they're doing. People can contribute as much or as little as they like, but it's a really fun way to kind of have some structure and accountability in your day if you're kind of struggling with um, what's going on in the world right now and, and are looking for looking for a bit of a different community and vibe. So our podcast, um, our Instagram, and then we're also on um, Facebook as well. But And we're going to do something really fun because my favorite episodes were always crossover episodes that we're actually jumping on to our podcast and having you guys on. So good news if those for any of your listeners that enjoyed what they heard here, you get double the fun because we are about to do this again. So can't wait. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. That is a wrap on this episode of the Mythbuster series, and we hope this information provides you with a more critical lens when you hear mainstream diet culture messaging. Please reach out to the person interviewed to connect with them in the ways they listed, or you can check out our social media pages at Mom Jeans the Podcast for details on the episode and to find our guests' information. And if you love the episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and recommend this episode to a friend. Sending you the inner strength to accept your jeans with a G and wear the jeans with a J. Bye. This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LaBoy. Just a reminder, this episode is not a substitute for therapeutic counsel or nutrition advice. Thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast and join the Mom Jeans the Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mom Jeans. See you next time.